Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, September 11, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is one of my favorite follows on Twitter, the great Ed Bott. Ed is an award-winning technology writer with more than two decades' experience writing for mainstream media outlets and online publications. Make sure to follow his column on ZDNet, as well as his award-winning Twitter feeds. Links in the description below. Today we'll talk about everything from social media propaganda to the Snowden NSA story to deep fakes to the new version of the iPhone. Meanwhile, if you dig the show, please support this podcast by subscribing to our Patreon page at bobseskashow.com. All right, let's talk with Ed Bott. Ed Bott, it's great to talk to you finally. Uh, what are you up to these days? Uh, you know, just the same old, same old, spending too much time on Twitter, uh, but doing my day job at ZDNet, uh, right. covering the technology business, which is yeah. fairly active these days. Do you have any new books in the works? Um, waiting for the, the third edition of Windows 10 Inside Out came out a few months ago, and we'll be starting on the fourth edition probably around the end of this year. So I get a little break between books right now, which is uh, nice. You know, I want to come back to Windows because I have a, a lot to say, probably for the most part agreeing with you about uh, about Windows. But before we dig into all of that, I just wanted to mention uh, right out of the shoot here, we first bumped into each other in 2013 during the whole Snowden fiasco. I remember we were both tweeting extensively about that thing. Uh, you were also recognized that year by Time Magazine for your uh, Twitter presence. What was your take on that episode with the NSA and Greenwald and Snowden and Russia? Seems like uh, a bit of a precursor to some of the stuff that we've been witnessing since then, hasn't it? Oh, man, doesn't it? Uh, it's... I, yeah, I went. I went back just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, and looked at some of that material. Yeah. And and I said, boy, a lot of the takes that people had on Snowden's role and just you know the way everything unfolded there mm -hmm. uh, haven't aged very well. It's <laughs> no. you know it, and and it's it's like um, we still don't know 
there, there's still so much more that we don't know than we do. And it's like a whole bunch of those details just went into the memory hole. Absolutely. And in the process of discussing what happened in the 2016 election, what continues to happen today, uh, we kind of forget that Edward Snowden is still a welcome guest of Vladimir Putin in Moscow. I mean, he's still there. He's still uh, probably being extensively eavesdropped upon by by Putin, which is ironic, of course. Now, do you think the the Snowden operation was maybe uh, Putin testing the waters to see how well he could scramble the discourse here? Oh, you know, I suppose that's possible. Um, you know, Occam's razor says it's probably simpler than that. That uh, it was, it yeah. was, you know, it was an opportunistic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's entirely possible that Snowden really uh, is and continues to be the idealist that he said he was, yeah. and there, you know, and and that that would be consistent with the facts that we know about it. It that doesn't mean, however, that a whole bunch of other people didn't immediately latch on to the whole affair yeah. and uh, and and use it for their own advantage. The way things have gone beyond that, I think have been darker. Mm-hmm. Many of the many of the later things that went through WikiLeak, the extraction of the yeah. hacking tools, uh, for example, you know, those were those were much darker and much easy much more difficult to find a plausible innocent explanation for yeah and the thing that uh we did witness in that time and in fact a lot of my coverage of the snowden greenwald saga uh circulated around a lot of i don't know if i would necessarily say it was fake news but a lot of headlines circulating on social media and on the blogs and elsewhere that didn't match up with the content of the articles there's a lot of hype and miscommunication about a very technically complicated thing. Did you see the same thing too? I mean, were you seeing a lot of the misreporting and mishandling of this information? Yes, although it was a it was a microcosm of what we saw later. Yeah. Uh, what we saw later, you know, in 2016, all of the stuff about Hillary's email server and uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the rumors that mm-hmm. that were being spread particularly through uh, dark Facebook ads uh, you know about Hillary's health for example you know yeah. there was a lot of that stuff that was going around that was uh, a more or less traditional influence operation aimed at bubbling up to the general public mm-hmm. the Snowden thing was different in a way because it was by and large, uh, national security reporters, people you know, people who had a, a a reputation for doing these stories, people like Barton Gelman and yeah. Greenwald and 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 other people like that, who had far more experience than than the average uh, journalist, the average mainstream uh, tech press person had, sure. for that matter. But there was it was such a confusing story mm-hmm. and it was also such a it was a controversy laden story you know so there were there you know it was so easy to paint it as the NSA the NSA has has complete access to every communication by every person in the world right. when when it you know and and that certainly might be true i mean those big data centers in nevada you know aren't 
aren't that big for nothing, mm-hmm. but the the general scope of a lot of the Operation Prism thing, for example, was that was a way to turn national security warrants into something that could be satisfied, boom, like that, yeah. uh, instead of having to go through a complicated process of, of you know, sending out letters and, you know, something that could take a day or two. Uh, previously, you know, they could they could literally do with the with the flip of a switch, mm-hmm. um, but you know, but I mean that's a really hard thing to explain. Yeah, it's a really hard thing to understand, and it's uh, even more difficult when the companies that are actually co- uh, doing the cooperation under legal process for these things, the mm-hmm. Microsofts and Googles and Yahoos of the world, are legally prohibited from discussing any aspect of it so you're you know you're you're sort of forced into a story at that point where a lot of the players can't tell you the truth and you know and i would talk to people who were involved in this and they would you know in in face-to-face conversations and it would be one of those things where i'd ask a question and i'd get a nod (laughs) and you know like not even a I can't answer that or no comment. It would just be just a nod. <laughs> yeah, you right. Know, and because because that's how serious the, um, you know, back at that point, it, it's been relaxed somewhat since then. Mm-hmm. But back then, if you received a national security letter, uh, you were legally prohibited from disclosing even the fact that you had received it. Yeah, and in fact, I think a lot of that uh, secrecy and confusion about the topic lent itself to or or created basically a giant opening for there to be a lot of misinformation thrown into the works. Um, It seems like everyone today is still willing. I mean, we're now how many years past uh, the, the whole Snowden thing? Everyone's still willing to blindly hand over their digital footprint to any app or website with any without any questions or outrage there i mean there was a famous app that everyone was using this app uh i don't know i I forget exactly what the app did it changed their face or something like that it wasn't deep fakes it was something else and everyone was playing along with that on social media and then only to find out later that oh yeah the app was working all of their personal information really smart so i mean what is the difference there i mean why were people more suspicious of the NSA with its warrants and oversight versus corporations that had no oversight and no warrants whatsoever. Well, I think there's uh, there's a tendency on the part of the general public mm. to look at everything as binary, mm-hmm. um, and and so you know things are either good or bad. And the NSA got painted as spies and bad, yeah. and there was no nuance associated with that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Google, you know, everyone knows Google search. Yeah. Everyone loves it. Everyone has their Gmail account. Uh, they, you know, for the longest time, I mean, I think that's crumbled a little bit in, uh, in, in recent years, but, uh, but still, you know, they're, the company is basically trusted. And so, you know, and anything that you do, it's involved with Google. It's, it's like people say, well, that's fine. It's, it's Google. Uh, and, and I trust them. I remember having some conversations, uh, it was on a, a podcast one time and the, the conversation of privacy came up and I mm-hmm. said, you know, and I said something very similar to what you said, which is that, you know, you are, you are helping large organizations that are basically advertising funded build tremendously 
rich and detailed dossiers on you yeah. all the time with your actions. And the reply that I got was, well, yeah, but that's okay. I want Google to have that information because then they'll use it to help me. <laughs> and I said, well, that's great. Uh, <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, they, so the, the idea is, you know, yeah, they're going to help me manage my calendar. They're going to mm-hmm. help me avoid traffic so I can get to my appointments on time. All the things that you're used to seeing on your phone, right? And, and I said, well, um, but, you know, what happens? They said, that's, you know, we're a couple of successful middle-aged white guys. <laughs> what if you're a person of color? Yeah. And, you know, your browsing history and your location is being tracked everywhere. And at some point you go to apply for a loan mm-hmm. and your Google dossier is used basically to, uh, you know, to deny you that loan because there's something in your, uh, in, in your record there that they don't like. You know, you've made too many trips to, um, you know, the off-track betting parlor. That's right. And uh, so you're going you're gonna to deny you that. And you'll never, you'll never know that. And they said, well, you know, but Google doesn't do that. I said, Google doesn't do that today. But that information is there and it's permanent. And guess what happens to companies when they fall on hard times? You know, it, when the earnings start to drop, when the profits start to drop, when there's pressure to um, meet Wall Street's, uh, you know, meet Wall Street's demands, or when there's a change in management, mm-hmm. you know, the management that today is saying, no, we don't do that. The new management comes in and says, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> right, and, right. Uh, and, and, you, and you've already given them your data. Sorry, it's too late. Exactly. And that's what I experienced. In fact, I, I just recalled what exactly that app was that I was referring to a second ago. It's this, it was an app that made your face look like an old person, like an old version of what you would look like. And it turned out that they were just doing a lot of data mining. And in fact, we had just read a bunch of uh, reports maybe a month or three prior to that about how a lot of these apps that people play with on social media they're not really for the fun thing that they purport to be. They're actually data mining. <laughs> and so, sure. and, and, and we're so willing to just say, Hey, well, as long as I can have some fun and, and increase my, uh, my, my reach on Facebook, I'll just hand over all of my information. Who cares? I mean, it's in terms of service who needs to read that. <laughs> so, well, but, and that's it. And that's if you're even aware of it. Yeah. Right. Right. You and, know, because there's a significant, number of people. And in fact, you know, this is basically the the core of the problem that Western liberal democracy faces. Yes. Is uh, there's a there's a large cohort of the voting public that is frank, you know, frankly unsophisticated. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you shouldn't have to pass. We have enough experience with literacy tests and such that we know that you shouldn't have to pass an intelligence test to, uh, you know, to cast your vote. But the trouble is that people who are unsophisticated can be easily manipulated for good or for ill. That's right. And uh, and when it's happening in ways that are either not obvious or are deliberately deceptive, um, then you know, then you wind up. Well, basically where we are. Do you think it'd be worthwhile, um, and this is something that I've just been spitballing uh, casually these days, but uh, you know, the more I think about it, the more it seems like something that ought to be doable. I mean, do you think it'd be worthwhile or practical to have a sort of driver's ed for the internet? Maybe start with teens in high school, you know, where a guy comes in. Remember the driver's ed class? I don't know if you went through this, Ed. Oh, but sure. We oh, had the, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the, the scared shitless uh, film strips that we would see of all of the brutal uh, acts accidents 
on the highways, and so people yeah, with the, their the, face the, caved. The, the classic was uh, the classic was from Ohio. It was called Red Asphalt. <laughs> yeah, the the right. That's yep. that's the one that they showed. Uh, they showed everyone back. Uh, and any and actually, if anyone Google's that, they'll probably be able to figure out just how old I am. Uh, <laughs> well, I from, remember it too. That. So. But we had a we had uh, I I was having a conversation the other day with my wife and we were talking about this this very topic about some of the core uh, things that people need to understand yeah that we that we should be teaching in high schools economic literacy um, how credit works yes and and yes how the internet works and um, the things and to how, avoid on and, the internet and how to be a skeptical news consumer yes you know these are. Yeah, you know, these are all things that we should be teaching. But honestly, you know, when you have, uh, you know, when you have state, I don't want to pick on Texas, but they're right next door to me. <laughs> and, you know, they're, you know, they, they in the last decade, you know, I remember reading about the textbooks that they rewrote mm-hmm. to put to put um, to put creationism back into them. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. You know alongside. So I'm always, you know, I, I, I'm deeply skeptical about the idea of putting a curriculum in place to teach people about how to detect fake news, because guess what happens when it's taken over by the wrong people? Right. And uh, fast forwarding to older internet users as well. I mean, my dad has an iPad at age 81 and uh, he barely knows how to navigate uh, email in terms of phishing scams and so on that, that drop into his inbox. Just educating people about what to avoid would be immensely helpful. But, you know, it's just a matter of uh, getting it to happen without it being too heavily politicized. That uh, <laughs> I think that might be the Although when you get right down when you get right down to it, you may have put your finger on what the, one of the more important things is not necessarily to educate the kids. Um, yeah. but rather to educate the, you know, the, the 65 plus mm-hmm. demographic, which yeah. is, you know, the, the research that I've seen says that that is the group that is far more likely than any other to be taken in mm-hmm. by deceptive, uh, messaging either through, you know, through both mainstream sources and through you know facebook groups and and ads and such and you know they're just they're just not able to distinguish that and so they're you know they're they share it mm-hmm. the same way they used to share chain letters and and such it's a you know it's the the need for uh news literacy is not i think age dependent yeah uh, again another thing to add to the list that we could uh, certainly inject into our curriculum now with with the right leadership of course you know and ultimately <laughs> we have this incredible resource at our disposal but it seems like so many users are kind of screwing it up for the rest of us i mean does this ever correct itself uh, or are we kind of screwed moving forward where the internet becomes either heavily regulated or continues to worsen as this uh, Wild West environment where 4chan and 8chan kind of dominate the discourse through trolls and so on. Well, you know, I I am naturally an optimist. Yeah. Uh, and yet on this topic, I think in a way, it's kind of like climate change. We had an opportunity to do something about the mess that the internet and social media have become. Mm-hmm. We had an opportunity to do something like that ten years about that ten years ago. But basically, the the organizations that, and the infrastructure that run those now, you know, the, the, those are the biggest companies in the world yep. now. You know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, 
Microsoft, Apple, the the companies that are that are basically responsible for uh, the, the information that we consume, yeah, have been allowed to grow in uh, without you know with basically only the most minimal of of regulation and the idea that that any part of that genie could be put back in the bottle is pretty you know is i i would love to be optimistic about that but <laughs> uh, everything that we are doing at this point seems to be trying to stem the tide yep you know i read i read the other day a statistic that one and a half million pieces of information related to suicide and self-harm was removed from Facebook over the past three months. And, and, I, and I wanted to scream because I said, you know, isn't the problem here that we have a platform where one and a half million pieces of, of information about suicide and self-harm could be posted in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, there, there, you know the, the, I mean, the biggest, the biggest problem, uh, you know, people talk about uh, Twitter and Facebook in particular talk about coordinated inauthentic behavior. I think that's the the phrase that they use for networks of bots and network of trolls right. that are are out there pushing messages. But I think that um, that that's that, that's almost a red herring to focus on there. Those are those are almost too easy to identify, mm-hmm. and the real. Uh, danger the, the the bigger dangers are from ordinary people who are radicalized and become sort of lone wolves of misinformation on the internet yeah yeah uh, and and you can't you you can't ident- they're 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 completely organic they're completely that uh, you, you 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 can't they're they're real people mm-hmm. doing horrible things, you know, spreading misinformation. And it's very difficult to think of any strategy where you can, you can stop that. Yeah. It seems like there's a generation of Americans specifically who kind of were brought up believing the headlines they read in the newspaper and the news reports they saw on the evening news and have now translated that. I don't know what you would call it. Naivete, uh, faith, uh, whatever. It, they've translated their observations of the internet with the same point of view to the point where they're buying all of the gibberish and nonsense, almost like um, the brainwashing that happens over at Fox News Channel. It's a, a similar yeah. dynamic, and and I don't think they're necessarily aware that they're being fed bullshit. And what the worst part about it is just adding this and on top of everything else, I think on social media, there's this X factor, which is the inability for a lot of people on social media to admit wrongness. Rather, they want to always save face somehow because their social media presence is so linked to who they are. It's becoming their their brand. And so to admit wrongness to admit that they were wrong about x y or z news story contradicts their ability to build their brand and it seems to me as if that right there can be a major major uh crisis uh, as well don't you think i i think there's a lot of truth to that especially when you combine that with the the sort of tribalism that we have that defines you know both what we're seeing 
in the U.S. and and now if you go over and you know you look at what's happening in the U.K. with Brexit, mm-hmm. you'll see the same sort of tribalism happening over there. It's it's funny yeah. over there, of course, blue and red mean exactly the opposite things, but mm-hmm. it's still the uh, you know it's still still the exact same thing. If you you go down into follow a tweet and and start looking at the replies, and you'll find. Uh, you know, just a large number of people who are just parroting what they've been told. Yep. And and it's, I'm not a both sidesism believer, but you get this people wanting to punch back from both sides. And so what you wind up with is as soon as you start following the replies in, in any thread, it just becomes this level of noise. Yeah. And you tune out what you don't agree with mm-hmm. and you amplify and retweet and share what you do agree with and you know and and pretty soon you know pretty soon the problem is worse and what you've got in both in both the US and the UK right now is also a fairly significant percentage of people of uh, you know easily over 20% maybe as high as 30% mm-hmm. who there is literally literally nothing that you could do to change their minds. Yeah. Uh, uh, there is no set of facts that you could give them. There is no, no there's no picture, yeah. uh, un- un- photoshopped or not, no video that they're going to, if it doesn't match with their worldview, they, they just reject it. If it yep. does match with your worldview, they share it. Did you, uh, now getting into 2016, uh, on this exact topic, um, did you observe in real time any of the social media manipulation we later discovered, uh, was run by, you know, these troll farms in Russia. And I saw a lot of misinformation just rapidly flying back and forth at the time. So, and it was only later that I realized that it was all part of this coordinated effort by Russia. I mean, did you observe some of the same things? Uh, I observed many of those things. Uh, I, however, I do recall seeing and being suspicious of some of the specific accounts that later turned out to have been traced directly back to uh, GRU. Yeah. One of them was uh, the one that I remember very, very clearly was the 10 GOP, the the one that was supposedly the, the uh, Tennessee Republican Party, but yeah. was actually a, a, a Russian influence, uh, influence account. And I also remember the um, probably the most staggering one to me was how quickly all of the stuff about you know, when Hillary Clinton uh, had that episode with pneumonia. Oh, yes. And, Jesus. Uh, uh, how quickly those pictures and the theories around them started spreading on on Facebook yeah. and on Twitter and uh, in the, the, you know, the darker stupider corners of the internet. Uh, I mean, they just, it, it was, it, it was genuinely remarkable yeah. how quickly those things spread. And again, it was because uh, there were people who had uh, an extremely vested interest in making sure that that stuff got pushed out, the Roger Stones of the world, right? <laughs> yeah. And and then it was also people who um, were just thrilled to have yet one more conspiracy theory that they could mm-hmm. share with their friends. And so that was sort of the perfect storm of misinformation. Uh, the, the timing was just right. They weren't 
necessarily photoshopped pictures they were they were real pictures and they were able to just build this narrative around it that was you know pretty sure it was devastating yeah uh for the campaign at that time Mm -hmm. one of many unfortunately one of many devastating blows that they took oh yeah uh, you know based on misinformation yeah, that's right. And in fact, that uh, Hillary Clinton thing was two years ago today. It was on it was on 9-11. She was coming out of the 9-11 uh, commemoration ceremony at Ground Zero. And that's when it all went down. What? And of course, as soon as I saw the video, my heart sank because I knew exactly how it was going to be exploited. Even though she had pneumonia, anyone can get pneumonia. It wasn't some sort of indication of a long-term illness, but of course, it was spun that way. But, you know, um, the thing that I keep trying to forecast, although it's almost impossible to do that, is... What is the 2020 iteration of social media interference? Because I know the uh, Facebook and so on, they've all taken strides toward uh, eliminating a lot of that. But, there, you know, as we've seen with doping and performance enhancing drugs and sports, the criminals are always fine. They're always one step ahead of the regulators. So at oh, least. Yeah, exactly. And and so what should we be aware of? Are there any indications whatsoever in terms of how they're going to now exploit uh, social media now that these uh, now that these roadblocks are in place to keep them from doing it? Well, I think uh, I think the real question is not to focus on the specific techniques they're going to use, mm. because as you say, that's always something they find a weakness, yeah. exploit it till it's discovered, right. find the next weakness, exploit it till it's discovered. I, I think the real, the, the, the proper strategy is to take a step back from that and say, what's the goal here? The goal is to suppress turnout uh, among, among populations that might vote for your opponent Mm-hmm. and uh, to spread misinformation that uh, discourages people who might support uh, your your opponent yeah yeah and and so the um, the the probably the most important thing to be doing is uh, not to be looking for specific tactics but to be looking for specific, I guess markers mm-hmm. and and insisting that the social media companies in particular uh, allow access to their data, such as advertising and uh, you know account level information, to organizations that can track when this stuff is uh, is is happening. Yeah. The you know I know there's been some researchers have been very frustrated. Uh, um, I'm going to stay away from details here because because I, I don't know exactly I, I forget which which service that it goes with, mm-hmm. but I know that there are. It's really important when uh, a social media company bans a user that they don't immediately delete all of their data. Yeah, because when that happens, you know you've basically eliminated the forensic trail that would allow you to go back and see. You know how they got there, who they were interacting with, who they influenced, um, and you know, and basically reconstruct the crime scene, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, having really that, I think, I guess, I, I'm saying then that the probably the most important thing for uh, researchers and people who are involved with 
sort of counterintelligence on this to be doing is uh, to be putting pressure on the the organizations that are disseminating this data to be transparent and to preserve the data and treat it like evidence, not as, um, you know, as evidence to be used by the public mm -hmm. rather than evidence of their own wrongdoing to be shredded as soon as possible. Right, right. And, you know, one of the um, apps that uh, I've been reading about lately, and there are a variety of different iterations of it, but generally under the heading of deep fakes, uh, the uh, the latest one to come out is called Zao, Z-A-O. And I was reading about that. In fact, I wanted to try to download it because I wanted to experiment with it and write about it. But it, it turns out that even when you delete all of your information from Zao and uninstall it, they still retain all of it on their servers. <laughs> and, and so that's one of the right. things that uh, kind of re referencing back to what you were just talking about. But in the broader discussion of deep fakes, um, that's the one that really concerns me as far as political interference and the ramifications, not just, I think, in politics, but in celebrity in general, where the degree of fraud that can take place with deep fakes, I don't think we've even been able to wrap our heads around all the different ways that that can be weaponized. Now, I will say this too. It is a wonderful technology that could actually be used for so much good. In fact, I saw one in which they um, deep faked uh, Christopher Reeve's head onto Henry Cavill's head in Justice League. <laughs> and I thought that was great to have Superman back in a movie. And so they could actually do that down the line with deepfakes where they can get permission from Christopher Reeve's uh, estate and cast him in another Superman movie if they wanted to do that once the technology gets more sophisticated. But there's also this much darker side that I think almost negates the value of the technology, at least from a consumer point of view. Don't you think that, uh, or do you think that deep fakes uh, is going to be something that we're going to have to face up uh, as far as, uh, you know, the weaponization of it? Uh, you know, I'm not sure that that's going to, I think we'll see hints of that in 2020. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't think the technology is such yet that you, you know that we're going to see a uh, you know category five level yeah. problem there, uh, but we've seen you know there. Lord knows they can do enough damage with with shallow fakes. Yeah. Let's go back to let's go back to two thousand four and the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. Oh my God, that yeah. was uh, you know, and there, that you know that was sort of the the template for the modern, um, you know, horrors that the, 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 you know, that's, it's Jerome Corsi, Roger Stone, all those guys, uh, they're, you know, they're still around today. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're, they're spending most of their time in court these days, but yeah. still they were, you know, up, up until a year or two ago, they were still doing what they do and they hadn't really changed their game. They were just, uh, doing it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the impact of these things comes not from being good, but from being overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. I have an overwhelming volume of misinformation coming at you in, um, in mainstream news stories, mm -hmm. in, uh, in deceptively edited video clips that are otherwise accurate, uh, that, that, that haven't been, you know, that, that haven't been deep faked in any way. They've just been edited selectively, uh, in, uh, 
you know, it's just sending. I was reading about the uh, the hearing the the Mike Flynn sentencing hearing, and so you know, and I saw some comments on a thread uh, where there were people who were still pushing hard this uh, bogus story that was pushed out by Roger Stone two years ago about a supposed teleconference that Andrew McCabe had where he said, um, you know, where he, where in Roger Stone's telling of it, there were multiple people on this teleconference who said that Andrew McCabe, then the deputy director of the FBI said, you know, we're going to fuck Flynn. And then after that, we're going to turn around, we're going to fuck Trump. And that story, I mean, people are still, if you go and you search that phrase, you will find every single uh, large-scale right-wing uh, sketchy media organization, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it has that story up on their website somewhere, and they just treat it like the gospel truth. Yep. And so you don't need deep fakes there to uh, to spread doubt among people. All you have to do is just keep a fire hose of bullshit um, <laughs> spraying. Yeah. You know, yeah. for that, you know, for that last month before the election, when people are are starting to vote by mail and vote early and vote absentee and, you know, and, and leading up to Election Day, anything that you can do to get people to either decide. And most of it is voter suppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brad Parscale in in, you know, the, like 10 days before the 2016 election said we have three separate. I think it was, you know, three separate voter suppression operations going on around the country. And, uh, and he was proud of that. Well, you know, and in fact, this takes us back to 2013, where I was observing this, and I'm sure you were too, where uh, some bit of misinformation, you know, in fact, what was happening was you're seeing a lot of leads and a lot of headlines that would then get kind of reversed somewhere deeper in the article. And what was y'all what we all know is that People generally only read the headline and then fewer and fewer people read as you get deeper and deeper into the article itself. And uh, and so what was happening is you would have uh, some sort of misinformation circling the globe several times before the truth and the reality of the story actually got its pants on. And so that happens so often, and, and especially with the stuff that you're referring to as uh, shallow fakes, uh, these propagandized uh, misinformation campaigns. Um, but but going back to deepfakes, the one thing that I see that useful for today is, and I, I hesitate to even mention what's been going on in my head because I don't want to give them any ideas, but uh, it seems like this is the purview of James O'Keefe and Project Veritas. Like, their whole MO is creating these selectively edited videos, right, that end up uh, being fed to Republican members of Congress, and they end up legislating based on fake videos, I mean, proven in courts of law, fake videos, I can totally see James O'Keefe maybe doing something uh, along the lines of a rat fucking, where he stages a P-tape, stages Donald Trump in the hotel room in Moscow, and uh, and deepfakes Trump's face, makes it look like it's surveillance video, so you can do it really in a cloudy, fuzzy, low-tech kind of way, and uh, and circulate that, and suddenly liberals are sharing that, and they go, "Ha ha, we got you! It's not real." And so that, <laughs> that kind of shit is the stuff that wakes me up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, thinking, 
Wow, man. One of these guys, uh, one of the James O'Keefe disciples, if not James O'Keefe himself, are totally going to love this technology if they're not on it already doing uh, research and development. If, you know, maybe I'm giving them too much credit for being sophisticated. Well, I think you might be giving James O'Keefe too much credit because he's proven himself himself pretty good at getting caught. Yeah. Um, uh, But the, the, uh, I think... If I'm recalling correctly, one of the concerns in the in the Steele dossier that Christopher Steele had mm-hmm. was that there were indeed compromising tapes that were out there, and that uh, there was a, a high degree of suspicion uh, and very little confidence that they were real. And 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 in fact, what they were seen as was um, was was disinformation yeah. being generated specifically to cloud the uh the you know the information environment and so what you got in that case is you have two possibilities of things that could happen somebody could uh from the opposition could use it and then be exposed as having fallen for a fake or uh or they could use it themselves against a potential target of it who wouldn't you know, who would know that it was a fake, but they'd be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, the, the Russian spy organizations who are about, you know, 17 orders of magnitude more talented than James O'Keefe uh, <laughs> would, uh, you know, would say, you know, mission accomplished. Okay, we'll return to our conversation with Ed Bot here in just a second. But first, picture your face in the mirror. Do you see all those wrinkles around your eyes? How's about crow's feet or those large under-eye bags? Now imagine... Poof, they're gone. And I'm not talking about some risky, expensive plastic surgery. I'm talking gone in a matter of minutes while you're staring into the mirror in your bathroom. It is called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in just minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? Well, I didn't either until I tried it. In fact, I thought, well, you got to put it on and you got to do it over and over again for six or seven months until maybe you might see results. But no, I'm talking 10 years younger in about 10 minutes. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody knows that you're using it unless you tell them that you're using it. So go to triplexiderm.com and use my code SEXYLIBERAL, two words, sexy and liberal, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code SEXYLIBERAL. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code SEXYLIBERAL at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com. Plexiderm.com. The Bob Seska Show. You know, why aren't trolls more sophisticated, uh, especially on Twitter? They're so easy to pick out, at least uh, I think to those of us who maybe have seen an episode or two of Rachel Maddow or have been online at all in the last uh, couple of years. It seems like they're really uh, just as clear as crystal. You see them pop up. They've got a, a weird handle, no profile pic, and a bunch of numbers after their name. Um, What's keeping them from being more sophisticated? Not that I'm wanting that necessarily, but it's always kind of baffled me um, how obvious they make themselves. Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying before is uh, this is the fire hose of bullshit. Uh, you, they, the, more, the more noise you have uh, in, in, a, uh, 
in a thread of replies to a Facebook post mm-hmm. or or a or a Twitter you know a Twitter announcement or something. You know, the more replies you have to that, the more discouraged somebody gets to tro- to scroll through it and look for the things that might be useful or or interesting. So mm-hmm. and so it it discourages people who are um, uh, capable of contributing to the conversation from even participating mm-hmm. and uh, and it just drowns out the other stuff but even more importantly i think is it makes it easier for the good trolls the sophisticated high value uh, well trained good english speakers mm-hmm. it makes it easier for them to just sort of get lost in the noise ah oh, yeah yeah because it, it, every once in a while you catch one where you're like now, I don't know. Maybe maybe that person's right. a troll. I, I really can't tell. I'm just going to assume. I just generally assume that they all are. <laughs> so my blocking <laughs> my blocking is very, very liberal, small L liberal on Twitter. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah. In, yeah. Eye for indiscriminate. <laughs> exactly. Now, um, just kind of a side question. Uh, and I think something uh, my listeners be interested in knowing more about is the prevalence or lack of prevalence of uh, click farms and and troll farms, not just when it comes to political propaganda, but artificially inflating traffic where you can, if you have a website, you can go and hire. I know a lot of uh, conservatives lately on Twitter have been caught um, buying followers uh, on Twitter. Uh, similar to that, I mean, how prevalent is that? Is that a, a real thing? And should it be regulated where businesses shouldn't necessarily be allowed to inflate their traffic statistics, at least when it comes to advertising, um, using all of these click farms? Well, there's there are it, it should be it should be regulated, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a big gap between what should be and what is yeah. the pro- in terms of advertising the problem is real one of the problems of regulating it is you know as you said earlier correctly uh, these guys are always in in this case because the money the the monetary incentives are so huge uh, these folks are four or five six steps ahead yeah. of 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 everyone else it's a huge problem for advertising it's a it's an arms war um, and you know, I, I don't know that in the, in the current environment that we have, that you're ever going to be able to, uh, eliminate it completely yeah. just because of the way that these things have been architected. The bigger problem is that the, uh, the internet is a global phenomenon. And so any kind of regulation that you do is only going to be as good as, uh, you know, as whatever Wild West saloon the the bad guys are operating out of, you know, and that might be, you know, that's typically there's a lot of the former Soviet bloc countries in Eastern Europe that are are good for that. There's places in, uh, you know, in Asia uh, that are doing that. And then on top of that, you get, you know, it's been fairly well established that North Korea was using similar techniques to generate funds for, uh, you know, for a lot of their operations. Sure, yeah. You know, uh, so you get, it becomes, you get, you get disorganized crime, you get organized crime, and then you get uh, state level actors doing this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know it's really really difficult 
to um, you know to to regulate something like that. Oh yeah, know? certainly. So, and in fact, a lot of conservatives for decades have been bulk buying their own books to get them to uh, place well on the New York Times bestseller list. And there still hasn't been any regulation or policing of that. Yeah, that was the uh, the, the 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 conservative book clubs would would do that, and so you know, so you know, Janine Pirro's book would yep. magically appear in the in the top five, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, and and because you know the conservative book club was sending them out to all of their members, uh, they 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 got there. It it's you know it's influence operations are like that. They're designed to make you look like something you aren't, mm-hmm. uh, and. In an, in an environment where the First Amendment is paramount, mm-hmm. you, uh, it's very hard to think of things that you can do to regulate speech yeah. that, don't, that don't trample on good speech much harder than on bad speech. Because mm-hmm. bad speech, you know, that they're not going to be deterred by laws and regulations. Right, right. Well, one of the, I've got just a couple more questions if you have uh, just a few more minutes, Ed. Um, you got it, Bob. One of your primary beats is Microsoft. I mentioned this earlier. And, you know, I still run Windows 7's Pro 64-bit on all three of my podcast machines here. Naturally, every time I have a, a tech issue with a show and I post about it on social media, if I say anything whatsoever online about the fact that I'm using a uh, Windows machine, most of my replies are um, unhelpful. They're basically all... Get a Mac, Bob. <laughs> how should <laughs> how should I respond to Mac evangelists on uh, on social media, and what don't people get about Microsoft products? Um, that's a know, loaded, loaded I question. I know it, it's a well, it's a very loaded question. It's also a time sensitive uh, or a time dependent question because yeah. I think the you know the the shouters out there uh, are make more noise than their actual representation in the population mm-hmm. would uh, would would justify. If you look in the comments to a lot of the articles that I publish at CDNet, for example, you would uh, you would be convinced that uh, Linux has probably a 30, 40, 50 percent market share on on desktop PCs because Gosh Almighty! There's so many, you know, dedicated Linux users out there, helpfully <laughs> yeah. offering, you know, telling people about what their favorite distro is and why they should, you know, why they should download it and um, and use it. The reality is, um, for people who understand what they're doing and know how to manage technology, a mm-hmm. tool is a tool, and you could get great results with a Mac. You can get great results with Windows Seven. You could get great results with Windows Ten. Uh, and you could probably get great results with Linux too. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, but what happens is instead that the much, you know, there's an 80, 20 rule that goes on here. Uh, and that for 80% of the people who have a limited understanding of, and more importantly, limited time to understand technology, the much better thing to do is to try is make a decision, choose a platform stay current yeah that's you know that's uh you uh staying a little bit behind is a small c conservative good thing to do if you mm-hmm. don't like disruption you know being yeah. the first you know like ios 13 is going to come out uh very very soon i know the gold master has been released you know you you never want to uh download the the point zero 
release of iOS on your <laughs> no. phone. You because within within the next month, there will be two batches of patches that will fix the first level of bugs that could only have been discovered by putting it out into the wide world where everyone can can use it uh, with a you know with the tremendous number of apps and services that are out there and mm -hmm. then to expose the issues that are you know that are there and I think the same is true with Windows and and Macs I tell people there's people I know who I say you should be using a Mac this is you know it's it fits into your lifestyle yeah. it fits into the other technology that you use you're a good candidate for that there are other people I say you should probably be using a Windows PC and there's one or two people I say yeah you know yeah. Go for it. Ubuntu Linux. Meantime, uh, didn't they, they rolled out the iPhone 11 yesterday. What do you think of that? Um, you know, it's a, it, it looks like an excellent incremental update yeah. uh, to, to some hardware that is really, really good to begin with. Mm -hmm. I think the interesting thing is that most of the takes that you hear from it, uh, about it from people are from people who live and breathe this stuff. But the people who are actually targets for, in the consumer sense, uh, the, the targets for this new level of, of product are people who are using three, four, and five-year-old iPhones, the iPhone 6, 6S, first generation 7, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Boy, they will, they will uh, you know, they'll buy a new phone. They, they won't be able to trade in their old one for anything, but that's okay. They got four or five years worth of use out of it. Right. They'll buy the new one. And the difference in performance and features and experience is just going to be staggering for them. And that's the, um, that's really the thing to, uh, I think to keep in mind is that if you say, well, it's not that much of an improvement over last year's iPhone 10s, which in turn wasn't that much of an improvement over the <laughs> iPhone 10, which in turn, you know, and, and you could do that. Yeah. But when you start taking a 20 to 30% improvement in performance with each generation and you compound those the way that, you know, interest does, pretty soon you're looking at, at something that is that is literally four or five, six times faster, sharper, more fun and 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 able to make you more productive. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the same thing is true with, uh, you know, the same thing is true with Samsung's products. The same thing is true with, um, you know, with uh, PCs from Dell or uh, or Lenovo, you know, yeah. so it's, it's just, it's, uh, uh, in a lot of cases, the, uh, people, people skip over the generations and, mm -hmm. and they're just like, they're so pleasantly surprised. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I think, I think I may skip over the 11 myself, but let me ask you this. We're coming up on 2020. We're coming up on the end of the decade. What is in your opinion, the most significant development in tech during this decade since 2010? Um, uh, you know, I don't think there's any question that it's Twitter. Yeah. Uh, for 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 better or worse, the idea that we have a, the you know a a president who is in office arguably because of Twitter, mm -hmm. who is uh, who is wreaking <laughs> havoc and <laughs> sowing chaos in the world through it's his a nice Twitter way to account. Put it. Yeah. And um and and all of that, uh, you know, I've, I I and and. You know, tw Twitter really came of age in uh, in this decade. It, it you know, it uh, I think it was introduced in 2007, and mm -hmm. I got my account in 2008. But it was it was just sort of this little experimental thing, and I think it was really 
not until 2010 or 2011 that it just took off and and it's it is a it's a media phenomenon now mm-hmm. yep. and it influences the media so much that uh that that's probably the thing that i would point to you know we all spend a lot of time making fun of twitter but it's everything is happening on twitter i mean whether it's celebrity news or just the immediacy of political news that we get on twitter too and the discussion that takes place around that it is a significant thing and you know what I think I agree with you. I think I agree that it's that it's Twitter. Uh, it would either Twitter. I guess iPhone was the the first decade of the two thousands, but uh, the Twitter would be this decade. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Okay, my friend. Well, it was great talking to you, and uh, I'm going to include all your links and everything in the description under this show, and and make sure everyone knows where to find you. So, thank you so much for all your time today, Ed. You got it, Bob. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Take care, my friend. Bye bye. Bye bye. Jody Hamilton, host of the podcast From the Bunker. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love my show where every week Sean Barton, David Shockett, and I discuss politics, sports, pop culture, that show on HBO that I don't watch. Find it at sexyliberal.com and on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere else you get your podcasts.